that Celine Dion bit last week <laughs> came across a little better than I thought it would because I was genuinely in my feelings for real. So I'm glad that you <laughs> could at least entertain my feelings about Celine not making the top 200 according to Rolling Stone. Mm. But yeah, I, I was just <laughs> I was just trying to say it's not you know this isn't written in stone and submitted somewhere you know as you know the end all be all list. Of course, of course. And if we want you know some actual diversity of thought and perspective and voice on lists, even lists of performances. We have partners that mm. engage just that. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, their very diverse lineup here in a bit. I also want to send a thanks here to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're musicians who play on your favorite films and soundtracks. And by evening, they are working to change and broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More more on them at salestina.org and more on some of their upcoming program here in a bit. But just to briefly, briefly, briefly go back to that Rolling Stone article. One thing that we failed to mention last week was that there were no classical singers, so-called classical singers on the list. We mm -hmm. can talk about did someone like Renee Fleming deserve a spot. But I think we also have to talk about folks like Jesse Norman. Do you think having Jesse Norman on that list would have been positive in some way, maybe getting a couple of more Googles on her name for people who don't know and that broadening perspective. It seems like there would have been some larger positives to come out of the inclusion of names like hers on this list. So you're talking about the effect of watching an awards program where you haven't seen any of the films or heard any of the music. You see who wins and then you go back and listen to it. It's something like that's, that. That's what happens with me a lot of times, especially with Oscars. Well, then know? sure, that could happen. But also keep in mind that Rolling Stone has a niche. That's you know, true. Classical music isn't necessary. So I could hear like, you know, what is it? The Strad or something sure, like that. Sure. Doing, you know, I, but yeah, if, Sure. If, if Rolling Stone put out something like that, it might spark some curiosity. Yeah. I think expanding perspectives and, you know, the, the ideas surrounding reframing classical, reaching new audiences, it's going to require not only just some really adventurous, maybe even weird things, as people would say, but a bit of discomfort. And we're going to focus on that in the introduction this week. Uh, last year, uh, on Triloquy, last calendar year, uh, we talked about uh, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, the latest Kendrick Lamar album, mm -hmm. you know, how it's just thoroughly instrumental. There's all sorts of uh, piano and drum set tracks all through and, and, you know, something that could really work on a, a chamber music stage. Uh I've been listening to it since, and I think it's a great example of what we're talking about when we're talking about expanding, you know, this idea of classical music and instrumental music, chamber music, whatever. Well, one of the tracks uh, on the album is called We Cry Together. Uh, basically, it's a track that I, I, I think it's fair to uh, put into the box of maybe an operetta. I'll get more into that in a little bit. But the track is... Uh, Kendrick and uh, a woman actor mm -hmm. uh, arguing and, you know, really just painting the picture of a really just toxic domestic scene. Here's a I'm going to and I'm going to play the clean version. I'll talk about that here in a second as well. But for folks who aren't familiar with this track, I thought I might offer just a little bit. Here's what it sounds like. Confrontational. Dumb. You want to bring it down, even when I'm trying to do right. We can go our separate ways right now. You can move on with your life. I swear to God. You love a bitty party. I won't show up. Always act like your 
Yo, feelings. You want some? See, I don't know why you like playing mind games with me. So I'm not typically one, especially, especially when it comes to hip hop, to offer clean versions or radio versions. The language in in this particular little operetta, again, as, as we're going to refer to this, is particularly harsh. I mean, you could hear all of the blanks, all of the holes yeah. in, in, in that. You know, when I ask you to uh, take a look at the visuals connected to this, so this is how I return to it. Mm-hmm. Dell was scrolling some of the uh, classic Kendrick Lamar music videos, and I didn't realize there were visuals to uh, uh, that have been created me around either. this. And and that's what you know got me thinking about okay, if we're talking about really contemporary opera, that you know the music, the backing tracks are largely almost wholly instrumental. We have a scene acted out here. This is where we're going. Um, I think I've centered uh, the perspective of a hip hop lover so long, I've forgotten to some degree how jarring the language can be. So I, I first want to acknowledge that and just say, that's why the clean version is happening here. I know that you personally had a very visceral reaction to some of the language used in this you know, musical scene, um, but can you see how uh, this is an example of what happens across cultures. We're seeing super toxic um, relationship, you know, things going on from, you know, this hip hop perspective with language that is traditionally aligned with black people and, and black culture. If we just pare all of that down and get to the crux of what this is, can you not see this as Kendrick Lamar creating something that forces people to look at the toxicity that they are experiencing or have experienced mm. in romantic relationships. I think there's something important there. Yeah, I, it makes me think of this quote from Tolstoy, something to regards of saying that uh, some art out there can't be enjoyed by some people is like saying there's some food out there that some people can't eat right, or something like that. I, I do think that people who are more versed in Kendrick Lamar's catalog and story will probably... Uh, be able to settle into that easier. But you're right, it is jarring to listen to. And I'm not saying that as an auteur that he isn't- Of course, of course. You know, very, very talented and an important voice. But I don't think he's aiming at me. Sure, sure, sure. In the the same respect, like if it was a Latin family, it would be different. If it was anywhere else, it would be a different thing. However, the point that he's getting at, I think- is important in the discomfort of the way people feed off each other in those dysfunctional type relationships. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable to watch. And that speaks to the quality of the performance. Now, getting back, you know, to the original use and purpose of that word discomfort, considering the things that we have platformed and highlighted here on Triloquy, even most directly, I'm thinking about uh, experiments in opera. We had a video operetta about uh, a young girl a young woman who takes acid, I think, for the first time or something. Yeah. You know, so right. so considering all of the things that we have seen, if we can sit the jarring nature of the language and those things to the side, could you make an argument as this being an example of super contemporary operetta? If we're talking about actually expanding our use of traditionally classical music idioms if we take that tack then this from kendrick is is way on the bleeding edge it's it's way out in front i really think that this is something that for people like me or you know people with 
experiences similar to mine, maybe they just need to spend some time with it. I don't yep. know. Yeah. But then there's also the fact that, you know, think about that movie Requiem for a Dream. Mm. I've seen it once. I don't need to see it anymore. Right. right. That's not saying it's not great. Yeah. Uh, their movie, I, I feel like that uh, about 12 Years a Slave. One, one, one time right. viewing that is enough for me. Right. So uh, perhaps this is, you know, like how people talk about um, uh, Beethoven being, you know, freaking his audience out with you yeah. know, the Third Symphony or something like that. Look at it now. So when we're talking about this operetta, again, we're just going to normalize this as that. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about this operetta pointing specifically at a community, you know, is there not a case to be made even for that in the conversation of expanding the genre, not just for itself, but as a means of expanding audiences as well? The mm -hmm. audience that he's pointing directly at, Has I'll been, say, yeah. is not typically in, in the opera house. But this could be that, I think, doing that, or I think the conversation is, are we willing to platform and create the media that does point directly at them for mm -hmm. the sake of broadening uh, this idea of classical music and its audiences, even if content that's pointed directly at certain communities is jarring to people who belong to other communities. I think it would be good for those other communities to understand what people in Kendrick Lamar's community are, are going through or facing. And, and again, you know, I think the bigger point is that people in all communities experience something like that. Mm. The container, you know, the, the context is that Hip hop audience, you know, and that's how we a black audience, black audiences, and that's how we get some of that really jarring language, those MFers, those ninjas, all mm -hmm. all of all mm -hmm. of those words. I feel like it really benefits the whole, even if there are members of that whole who feel very uncomfortable with that. this being in in the pot. But at the end of the day, if the work is expansion, I think expansion has to be just that, and there will be discomfort along the way, but. For some people, it's being seen. For some people, it's you know really doing something provocative. I don't know. All of these thoughts came to my mind as we think about, again, decolonizing classical music, expanding our ideas um, around those phrases. I think we have to consider what it looks like for the non-typical audience to completely be centered. And even if that means isolating at least when it comes to one thing you know mm -hmm. one little operator if that means operating uh isolating the typical audience i think there's still growth there and i still think there's value there now for the people who are unfamiliar with this operetta titled we cry together what happens at the end what does let, let's 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 enter the woman in in this dynamic what does she experience at the end of of this piece shall we frame it as sexual gratification mm -hmm. what happened at the end of carmen but an attempted rape and a murder mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. what happened at the end of madam butterfly but a woman dying by suicide from heartbreak from being abandoned mm -hmm. by some westerner mm -hmm. lucia de la mamor you know she comes down the stairs on her wedding evening covered in blood sings some hysterical you know um she she'd gone mad as as the a uh, very patronizing trope has been and dies right there at her wedding party. You know, none of that. Tosca leaps, leaps to her death. Right, mm -hmm. right. None of those tragic things happened to the woman at the, at the end of the Kendrick Lamar operetta. Mm -hmm. She actually 
got some gratification. I think it's very important to note that when we talk about what does and does not belong in opera space, operetta space, what is visceral, what is uncomfortable for us, I think it's very interesting that femicide is not uncomfortable because it's been normalized in that that thing that we're calling opera, mm. while on the other side, we have something that is very jarring that concludes with a woman actually getting some gratification, but we argue against that as being inappropriate or not for me. And, I'm, and, and I will admit, it's not for everyone, mm-hmm. but I think that is an, a very important dynamic to, um, to, to consider. And it's also important to point out the, the different layers that that introduces too, because there's so many toxic relationships that are still going on because they've got one thing that keeps it going. And for some, it's the sex. Right, right. I think that is something that's universal. And if, like I said, if the context, if the container is this sort of thing that is very visceral to people, but is presented in an operatic way, Mm. I think we have to consider that, especially considering the fact that it goes against the um, the femicide that, again, has been normalized across opera as... Uh, as an idea. I think expanding the genre means that we are all at some point going to face some discomfort. Being comfortable with discomfort, I think, is born from provocatively honest and provocatively vulnerable dialogue, really going there and really trying to understand what it's like to center another perspective even if that perspective is different from our own. I think that's where the comfort with the discomfort comes from, really having that dialogue and diving in. And, of course, Triloquy is the space where we do just that. Testify. Let's go ahead and jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in to new listeners. This is a show that takes the idea of classical music, that concept, that phrase, and puts it on its head. We take that idea and we examine what should be included in that idea of classical music. We take contemporary music, we take contemporary conversations, news articles, anything that you can think of and approximate them to classical music, all in an effort to decolonize classical music. For more information on Triloquy, to catch past opuses and to donate, go to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. And of course, to returning listeners, we could not do this without you. Thank you for your continued, very generous support. Before I forget, I am going to put in the description an archived uh, New York Times article titled, It's Not Over Until the Soprano Dies. Just in case there are some people who don't really see the issue of femicide in opera, I'll leave that there for you to check out, and you can determine whether or not you uh, see see a pattern. Um, But anyway, in in addition to um, all of your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. Coming up on January 26th, Schubert Club is presenting Adventure to New Classical with J.D. Steele, composer and vocals. For this performance at the new Luminary Arts Center, J.D. has written all new music and is joined by an extraordinary group of Minnesota music friends, including keyboardist Tommy Barbella. More information on that 
at schubert.org. Support for Triloquy also comes from Salestina. Coming up on February 4th, Salestina will present its happy hour number 111 with Derek Sky. Uh, join Salestina for a complete performance of Derek Sky's As I Heard When I Was Young before we record it uh, in the studio, before uh, Salestina records it in the studio. A little dialogue from Derek Sky that goes down again on February 4th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. So if you're in Central or uh, uh, Eastern time zone, you don't have to wake up so early mm. uh, to catch that. Uh, for more information uh, on that and to grab your tickets, check out salestina.org. I'm also uh, very happy and very proud uh, as uh, the president of Trillworks Media to announce the inaugural season of Gateways Radio. This is a 13-part series that uh, features performances by the Gateways Music Festival Orchestra as well as other pieces um, uh, performed and written by people of the African diaspora. Huge shout out to WFMT, WXXI, WQXR, and all of the local stations across the country uh, that have picked up Gateways Radio. If you want to check it out yourself uh, and want to know a little bit more about the schedule in case you aren't in one of those areas, just visit gatewaysradio.org. We have Afa and Aaron Dworkin um, from Sphinx joining us. In this opus of Triloquy, I think it's about time. I was going to say, it's been a long <laughs> way, right? Yeah, yeah. Couldn't, can't can't wait to um, share that conversation with y'all. Coming up in the second movement, Scott's going to share a guitar concerto. I have some choral music. Uh, we're recording this on uh, MLK Day, the, the bank holiday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So we're going to talk a little bit about Martin Luther King and the final movement today. But for now, we're going to hop into movement one. All right, Scott. This week's accidentals are um, are, are juicy ones. They're uh, and also say. the different uh, different sides of the same coin in some ways. Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll let you uh, get us started with the with the first one here. What we got? This one I am going to give a sharp, and I'm looking at BBC.com in the culture section. Daisy Woodward reports a radical new wave of artists are sweeping the previously elite world of classical music with a little help from Squid Game, Dark Academia, and Fashion. Daisy Woodward explores how classical got cool. Mm -hmm. So was that on your bingo card for the day? It was not. Okay. So um, my question is, uh, I was a little, it raised one eyebrow for me because back in August, I went to the PRPD conference. Now, granted, that was talking just about radio, mm -hmm. but the first main room session was uh, a research-based presentation on what public radio is missing with Gen Z. Right. Basically, and this is, you know, classical music and the talk programs. They were completely missing them because they viewed that as something that not their parents listened to, but their grandparents listened right. to. And this says that uh, according to a survey Published in December of last year, Royal Philharmonia Orchestra found that 74% of UK residents age under 25 were likely to be tuning in to that at Christmas time compared to a mere 40%, 46% of people 55 or more. Mm -hmm. So uh, RPO's broader finding that under 35-year-olds are more likely to listen to orchestral music than their parents, but also the widespread surge of popularity in classical music in general particularly among younger generations. Are we talking about a difference between UK children and American children? <laughs> maybe maybe that is what is is the disconnect here. <laughs> See, I, and here I thought you were going to ask my question is, I think we need to differentiate between hard, big C classical and 
movie music, scores, music that's orchestral, video game music, right? Right, because we have heard about, um, we've heard about orchestras putting together a, a night of video game music. They sell out, yeah, and they add, they I've add played things, them. yeah, right. You've and you've talked about uh, introducing something that you've heard from the web or something into your radio shows mm -hmm. to try to make that connection with somebody who might be online, and. I think that that differentiation is is important hmm. because I don't know if we're necessarily talking about you know the younger set tuning in for Handel and Mozart and such. Do so what, so what if I say the differentiation is important because the big C classical industry doesn't center that type of music? Is that why we need to right. differentiate? Yep. I think it would be so <laughs> phenomenal if programmers were thinking in that way because that means okay if the young audience is there listening to this classical music that we need to shift that over into our main stage things and pull that audience with us mm -hmm. you know but of course this younger audience the gen z audience does not yet have the uh 10,000 50,000 100,000 donors and board members and and these things quite yet. Mm. So I think it's flashy and glittery for an orchestra, even if they went as far as to really center what we would talk about pops concerts. You know, if that sort of programming were at the center of an orchestra's season, they could brag about having the incredible younger, fresher audience there. I think they're afraid of what that looks like, where, where the dollars go mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that, that are walking out the door, maybe that aren't centered in, in that perspective. That's right. And uh, the very next paragraph, uh, the author points out something that we've talked about recently, mainly how social media for classical music is going to start leaning into the mess a little bit. Listen, yes. You know, where it has existed <laughs> elsewhere uh -huh. uh, for a long time. It's been absent in classical music and opera, and I think that that's coming. Um, she points out that Gen Z and young millennial classical artists are finding ways to be seen and heard online. So your TikTok, your yep. sharing things on Instagram and such like that. And are we wasting our breath by repeating the vital nature of social media? I mean, from your perspective, I don't think you can avoid do, it. Do, do you think that is being heard yet? I mean, it's it's so obvious to me, but it seems like there are so many uh, classical organizations that haven't quite just settled into the fact that not only do you need to engage this thing called social media, but you have to have someone in your fold who can actually engage it in the way that it's meant to be engaged or in a way that is effective. Yes, the development um, officer at XY Orchestra, you know, can certainly post something to, to social media. That doesn't mean that that person knows what it's like or what's required to get 100,000 likes on something and X right. followers, like we're seeing so many Gen Z people bodying. You no, know? You're, you're absolutely right. You have to be able to play the game. If you're gonna go out and be on social media, then you, you've got to go out and do it the way that's going to get the clicks. Yeah. And as it's pointed here, tick, the TikTok hash clack, hash clack, <laughs> the TikTok hashtag classic talk currently at 53.8 million views tests. There is a, uh, on Instagram as well. Young classical artists have been making use of the digital realm's democratic potential to lift heavy velvet curtains. And they're talking about, you know, they, they do mashups yeah. or um, their own treatments. You talked about hearing uh, a pianist play somebody else's work, you know, so it's, it's getting to them through means other than oh, the, sure. the, the big orchestra. Yeah. You know, you might hear a 
scaled down transcription or something. Yeah. But um, Esther Abrami has 380,000 uh, uh, members on TikTok. She's a French violinist. Yep. Uh, and the first classical musician nominated to the social media superstar category at the Global Awards. Do you know what that is? I don't know what it is, but it must be important. The, it sounds the, the, the children are there, so <laughs> it, it must be important. Uh, you know, Abrami uh, offers something. She's interviewed in this article. Uh, she says here, uh, "I think putting the face of somebody not so far away from them." To the genre is a big thing. That's what I'm trying to do to reach different types of people and create bridges to show them that this music can really move you. When we're talking about expanding the genre as a means of expanding the audience, to me, that sounds a little different than what's being described here. It sounds like the other approach, you know, the, the sort of bifurcated circumstance that those of us who are trying to make some changes in classical music fall into is are we expanding the genre? Or are we expanding people's education on the genre as it currently exists? That's mm. that's what I read out of that that uh that quote. Not to you know not not to discredit it, not to right. dismiss it, but I do think that difference really has to uh has to be named. I think that difference isn't con uh, completely understood among a lot of people trying to shift things in classical music. I was moved when they uh, when they started talking about Babatunde. Akembo Boboye, is that, yeah. did I say that right? Yeah. Um, and we highlighted his story, his TikTok story, because uh, just a few opuses ago, because he's using it to now turn and critique the establishment okay, and members that, of the but establishment. But that's not mentioned in, in this article, is it? So, what, no. so, so they're highlighting him, rightfully so, for his uh, mashup of what was it? Uh, 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 Barbara of Seville. Barbara of Seville and the Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick. Speaking of Kendrick Lamar, you, yeah. yeah, he he took uh, he took that and mashed it up, and of course that went viral. But I think you're making a, a very important point. It's not just those sort of mashups that have uh, contributed to Baba Tunde's success in classical music. It's the fact that he is saying things and naming things that other institutions, other individuals aren't. Even this very article, you know, right. they they aren't naming that. I think you have mentioned that before. Again, going back to your uh, public radio conference, classical music needs a, a, a little bit more of the mess, yep. you know, the <laughs> a little take. bit more of the confrontation, a little bit more of that that hot sauce, you know. Yep. Another one of the uh, folks uh, highlighted, uh, profiled in this piece, is a Polish countertenor named Jakub Josef Orlinski. Um, he's quoted here as saying that uh, classical music has achieved an almost hipstery status. He says, it's cool to go to the opera to know something, and that's because there are a lot of young artists delivering music on the highest levels while making it very entertaining. Again, maybe the youngsters over in England are different, mm. <laughs> but I'm not sure that I could describe classical music as it exists today, as people think about it uh, today, as almost hipstery. Not I don't all. see that as the, you know, and, and I, I work in uh, uh, in New York, so I can see that perspective specifically when it comes to new music. You know, when the American Composers Orchestra plays Carnegie Hall, you have a lot of the young, cool people there, the people that you might run into at the art museum or that sort of thing that happens. I'm not sure if that's the case for uh, a program where Beethoven Six is the big piece on the concert. That's no. the purpose of people coming. No, I'd, but again, like I said, maybe it's just a different a difference of perspective. Maybe that is what's happening over there across the pond. Well, 
Um, let's hope that another British invasion happens and we can, <laughs> we, we, we start having that here because we've been preaching it for three seasons now. Maybe to make that reality, <laughs> we just have to put it in articles. We just have to say, oh, classical music is becoming almost hipstery. And once we're saying that and saying that enough people are believing it, uh, and they'll just put on their little, you know, top hats and go to the, you know, whatever the hipsters are wearing these days. God bless y'all. But, <laughs> no. but I mean, but do, but do you think there's a, a hint of that naming a thing as a uh, as a means of getting to the thing, getting to the status of classical music being cool, even if it isn't uh, right now? If we say it is, if we if we frame it for readers in this way, maybe that'll make a few more of the hipsters curious. And now. You know, we can say that classical music is a little hipstery. <laughs> so you're, you're saying more publications need to start their their stories off with, um, since um, millennials and Gen Zers are getting into classical music now, right? right. All of a sudden, here's some of our picks. And then, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, yeah, yeah, the, the, uh, a room where there are no Gen Zers, but here are right. our picks anyway. <laughs> but you know, all the time we talk about speaking things into existence, so maybe well, I should it. just uh, maybe I just should dismiss that. I, I'm going to agree with Baba Tunde, though. There's a quote near the end where it says he is tentatively hopeful. He says, "I think that opera is definitely being a lot more bold, and I hope that it continues because I think we can catch up." Yeah, and I think that's what more people, you know, the the so-called anti-woke people, we'll we'll get into that here in a second. Mm. But <laughs> I feel like that's what they need to understand that those of us who are most to the front, most critical, we're like that because we love it, because we want it to shift. You mm -hmm. know, we recognize the impact that classical music has had on our lives. We love it so much, we want it to survive. And from our perspectives, for it to survive, A B C X Y Z has to happen. So I, I think at the end of the day, I share Babatunde's uh, optimism. I think there's just a lot more work to do, but we're here to do that work. And I think that's what fuels my optimism. You know, Babatunde and all of the people, excuse me, mentioned in this article are um, are doing that work. So, mm. you know, I, I, I think it's fair. Con considering the the you know things that you're taking <laughs> uh, on the radio front, mm -hmm. do you share Babatunde's uh, optimism? Do do, <laughs> do you think classical radio specifically one day will will make it to the mountaintop? You know, shout out to Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know which day that will be. Uh -huh. when, when I, but <laughs> yeah, we're not going to give a timeline. But <laughs> that's the direction I look in. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that much about the folks around me and i hate to speak for them of course i think again so to, to wrap this up the takeaway that i have is that we need to start really determining if we're looking in the same direction again are we expanding the genre or are we expanding people's education of the genre as it has existed traditionally as a means of getting them in there i'm, I'm on the side of expanding the genre meeting people where they are are you more on that side, or would you make an argument for the expansion of education, of, of knowledge about what a Beethoven symphony is, and maybe that will get people, you know, in, into the... <laughs> into the hipster crowd? Right. <laughs> maybe <laughs> them. Maybe them, maybe. But. Um, you know, again, if somebody is going to a video game concert or a movie music concert, I would encourage them to check out one of the, one of the other subscription concerts at their, at their local orchestra. You might like it, and you yep. and I don't know, maybe you won't. Yeah, but at, at least you're you you yourself are then widening your your 
would it be expanding your palate there? Sure, sure. I have uh, really been humbled by talking with a lot of people outside of of the biz, specifically listeners to Triloquy, who say that there is a curiosity that they have about a Sibelius Symphony or mm-hmm. or a Rachmaninoff Concerto. So I get that, and that's great. I, you know, not but but and. I think, again, meeting people where they are, expanding the genre, expanding our ideas about it, shave away other problems. It shaves away some of the race issues and gender issues and Mm. socioeconomic issues and all of those things that classical music has to also deal with. So Mm. while I won't dismiss, you know, a Gen Zer who is actually listening to a Handel cantata or something, I will also say that we, we, we have to dismantle more than people's understanding about this music and feeling that they can't relate to it because the genre is laden with so many issues and expansion of our very approach to it, I think would, you know, help alleviate some of those other uh, peripheral struggles as well. All right, well, we're going to transition out of this one uh, with a performance uh, featuring Jakob Josef Orlinski. He was featured in the article here, so thought I would uh, shine a, a light on him here. Uh, he's accompanied by pianist Alexander Debic in a original composition. It looks like an original composition anyway. It was uh, produced back in 2020, and it's called Stay Home. Let's take a listen. It ain't easy, the simple wolves feeling stuck here all day long Only going to a grocery store later to buy some food and toilet paper Don't be So stupid toilet paper ain't no gold Stay home, stay home Stay home, stay home Stay home, stay home You know, uh, Jakob can say, and I agree, he can say that toilet paper ain't no gold and... Listen, <laughs> what? I remember like it's something how much of a different world 2020 seems at this point. I will never forget going to Target and there being an armed guard and one of those, not a velvet rope, but, you know, one of those things at the airport a that help people, yeah. a partition on the toilet paper aisle. Damn, you know, look, <laughs> look at look at how uncivilized we can be <laughs> as a as a people. Yeah. Isn't that ridiculous? Shout out to uh, everyone at BBC. I think that was a very interesting article. And then, of course, as mentioned, we have a bit of the converse here. I'm just gonna, you know, go ahead and just straight up give this one a flat. It comes from CityJournal.org. The title: Strategic. Charitable giving, a guide to supporting the classical music organizations that hold true to their missions amid the relentless DEI tide. Okay. First and foremost, so this is another one of those uh, Heather McDonald. I was going to say, say, you got it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Why do we talk about this? Why do we give works like this, writers like this, any room, especially on a podcast like this? In my opinion, I think it's very important to know that that other side of that coin exists. We are so used to people, even if unauthentically, maybe just talking out the side of their neck, support DEI. Oh, of course, I want to see change in classical music. You know, Within that community, I think there are folks who really mean it and folks who are just kind of saying it. I think it's vital that we understand that there is another shade to that, people who are outwardly and openly opposed to that sort of movement. Mm-hmm. That's my justification for, for I, I just wanted to put that out there. Now, do, do you have a 
an opinion on just the uh, the platforming of articles like we're about to explore right now? Well, didn't I say I'm not really nutty about giving air to this earlier? Yeah. But I would say something similar to you in that all of the folks who would say they listen to this podcast or some like it mm -hmm. and say you're overreacting. This isn't the urgency that you're talking about. Well, then we have a story like this, which goes directly to all those ivory pillars and shims them up and shores them up and, and reinforces them. This is what you're up against, people. This is what you're up against. Let me read this uh, opening. It says, Joshua Katz recently urged City Journal readers to exercise due diligence in their charitable giving. Do not assume, he warned, that the nonprofit you have supported for years remains true to what was once stated as its purpose. So first of all, I was like, oh, okay, we're getting somewhere. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now I'm, Me too. you know, I was like, okay, we, we're, we're about to talk about something. Mm -hmm. But as, you know, we we continue to <laughs> get into this piece, we see what, you know, the writer is really talking about. Let me just offer a little bit here from a, a little further down. It says, many years ago, I decided to focus my donations ex exclusively on classical music since it is the most important thing in my life and is struggling to survive. My primary criterion for donation is whether an organization programs music outside the stupefyingly repeated canonical repertoire, a repertoire that probably comprises at most 100 works. So once again, I'm like, I'm on okay, board. here we go. We're, we're, we're getting somewhere. Maybe I, you know, uh, didn't read Heather McDonald right in the Same. past. You know, we're, we're, we're going there. Okay, but let's continue <laughs> to go. Let's continue to go. Uh, she writes here, after that initial new repertoire cut, she's talking about uh, uh, the Met here, mm -hmm. my giving to classical music organizations is inversely proportional to those organizations' embrace of racial justice rhetoric. I am all for racial, ju racial justice as it once was defined, but classical music does not at present have a racism problem. So... <laughs> We're taking the opening statement, you know, talking about be careful who you're giving to, mm -hmm. talking about we, we don't want to hear this same repertoire, but all of that is wrapped into not only an opposition to um, anti-racism in orchestral music and in, in classical music, but a denial that there is a race problem. Help me. You help me. Because I don't know what I'm, Look, I'm, I, I don't know what to say. I know it. I know it. I have to say. I have to say that I started this article twice because I got halfway. She flipped the script on me twice. I thought, and I thought, I'm not getting this. <laughs> I'm misunderstanding, and I have to go back and and take another running start at it. I'm looking at this uh, part where she's talking about um, wanting variety. You know, mm -hmm. Wanting she wants variety, and I'm thinking, good. Yeah, okay, yeah, so let's, let's expand do it. Come it. on. But what is she talking about, though? Instead of the Four Seasons, how about Vivaldi's operas? <laughs> what? So instead of Wonder Bread, <laughs> how about Wonder Wheat? Right. <laughs> okay. Instead of the Rhenish Symphony, Schumann's Das Paradis und de Paris, so the Paradise and the Fairy, I guess is what that is. Instead of Orfeo and Eurydice, Gluck's... So we're, we're, we're not... Don't play the hit... Play the B side right. is what we're saying from these composers. Right, right. But don't but don't mess with the composers themselves who we venerate. What I'm what I'm personally offended at, at is when she refers to mediocrities of Joseph Bologna and Florence Price. Ooh. Now, to me, we're just talking about taste. Okay. Or, you know, you're if some people are going to like music that other people don't. <laughs> and 
to just call it mediocrity or that the person listening to it is a Philistine and they don't know what's good, I I just think that that's uncalled for. I mean, that's, that is not shade you need to throw. The, the, the racism jumps out so quick. You know, it, it also says here, um, it is it is colorblind classical music. It's colorblind in its pursuit of musical excellence or was until the post-George Floyd meltdown. meltdown. Mm-hmm. No black or Hispanic musician is being denied opportunities today because of his skin color. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is what I have to say about that. You know, item A is, and she did this in a previous uh, article, listed a few black musicians as, you know, the tokens. Look at them. They're not having a problem. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say their name. Look at them. They're not having a problem in classical music. What are you talking about? I think what is not really understood, even by some of the most well-meaning people, is that skin color is a defining factor in lived experience. And it's the lived experiences of certain communities that aren't welcome, certainly have not historically been welcome, but I would say to this day are not welcome in classical music. Let's go back to what we were talking about really briefly in the introduction. The Kendrick Lamar operetta speaks not to a skin color, but to an experience that it's approximated to skin color, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not dark skin. Oh, because I'm black, mm-hmm. you know, or because I'm Latine, I'm not getting a, a, a chance. But it's the fact that the lived experience connected to that skin color isn't being given a chance. I think that's really what is, is being missed, certainly by this writer, but even by some of the most well-meaning people trying to do the good work. It's veiled. She veils it, but you just go down to the the comment section, and it immediately goes political. It immediately yep. goes to wokeism, to left, the dangerous leftist, you know, which she didn't mention any of those things. It was just because sort she of doesn't have veiled to. or yeah. impl- right. Um, after the Metropolitan Opera threw the great Spanish tenor Placido Domingo to the Me Too harpies, uh, that sentence tells you a lot. I cut my giving by 80%. I should have eliminated my support entirely after general manager Peter Gelb hired a chief diversity officer at a time when Gelb was warning us that the Mets' uh, perilous finances threatened the company's very survival. I would point you to go back to Triloquy Opus 180 when we covered the Met digging into their endowment to the tune of $30 million so they could engage more living composers because they were selling better than the canon, but go off. I I, I want to make sure that the listeners really heard what you just read, though. This writer is critiquing the Met, Mm -hmm. not only because they hired a black woman in a position that she deserves, but that because they got rid of someone who was openly proven to be a sexual offender. Right. Again, what am I supposed to say? And I know that it's all about building bridges and and those sorts of things, but a person who just does not consider the, the harm and the danger of a sexual predator on staff somewhere and disagrees with his dismissal, mm-hmm. it's, it's shocking. One, one really important point that I wanted to uh, pull out that I think is you know sort of antithetical to the article that uh, we were just talking about, uh, she writes here, for most young people, it is an alien, if not repellent, idiom, talking about how classical music is struggling, this DEI thing is killing it even uh, further because young people just are repellent. So again, let's go back to the previous article. On BBC.com. Yeah, they're they're talking about 
classical music as it's this hip. new hipstery thing. So what are we talking about? Is classical music this new hipstery thing, or is it alien and repellent? Exactly. You know? <laughs> maybe Which the, is it? Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle, but I think it's it's very interesting to to note how even the perspective on that mm-hmm. is different. So, you know, she goes on in this article to talk about, you know, all of these ensembles whose wokeism is killing them and and uh, you know this. This is why I don't donate to them anymore. But then, as you continue reading, she writes here. So, what ensembles ranked highest in my due diligence? <laughs> and this is this is where it got juicy because mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So, not only is this writer burying the importance of DEI and anti-racism, she's going to hold up on a podium the organizations, the ensembles that are who not agree with her. Right. I would be pissed <laughs> if I'm reading this article and I see my organization or an organization that I'm affiliated with included there. What would be your reaction to being a part of any organization that's named in this writer's, but these are the good ensembles. These are the good organizations who aren't succumbing to that wokeism. Wow. I'm me or I'm one of the members of that organization. You're you're one of the members of that or and, and maybe not a boss, maybe not a manager. You you work at the American Classical Orchestra that she names here. You work at the Early Music Foundation. You work at Handel House, you know? Mm. <laughs> what what do you what do you do? How do you react? That that from my perspective, that is almost libel you know against those organizations now handle house we 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 you know, you know we you know I, 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 I don't need to i don't need to go there because the 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 article does mention that he only held you know stock in that slave trade for a short time and it was a payment for a commission so i guess handles off the hook now right let me ask you this though if you were with american classical orchestra one of these other things wouldn't you see what's going on? Wouldn't you know what's up already? Would this would would being called out in this article land with you? I mean, if you're there, you already know what's up. I think that that is that is a thing, you know, already knowing what's up. I also believe, maybe, you know, I have to believe that there are people in those organizations that want to call foul here that have said no don't don't put us in this don't don't right, include you know right. I, I but but again maybe they are okay maybe she got permission to 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 name them i think maybe you know we need to get uh, writers like this to name more of these organizations so we mm. know <laughs> it's like Start a, a like a, a, right, a database a green book of of, of <laughs> oh, sorts of nice. the of the organizations that we we do need to anyway i'll uh i'll let y'all read this my basically the thing of it is again we cannot ignore that there is rhetoric that pushes against the progress that so many of us are trying to make in classical radio it's not about me damning this writer it's about highlighting the fact that there aren't neutral parties. They're the people, as I mentioned earlier, who may just be giving lip service, but they're the people that are actually actively saying, no, you're wrong. This wokeism is killing classical. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to be serious about engaging uh, the conversation and the work connected to the conversation, we have to acknowledge that. Before we leave this, (laughs) you're not done. Before we leave this, she doesn't leave radio out of the conversation, Mm -mm. does she? Mm -mm. What, what, What does she what does she say there? 
Guided by these principles, I diminished my support this past year for an opera company that has embraced land acknowledgments mm, mm, mm. and a public radio show that positions its photographs of young black musicians next to commentary about representation. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for the shout out. I hope even more of you listen to Gateway's radio. I cannot confirm that she's <laughs> talking about Garrett McQueen mm. and a Trillworks Media production. I have no reason to believe that she isn't. So I, I appreciate the uh, the shout out there. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe she don't want it from me. Maybe that's why my name, because my name came up <laughs> in the last one. Well, Remember? She wanted a glancing blow, not so a she, Yeah, so, so she don't want no smoke, and she is correct to not mm -hmm. want no smoke. Anyway, thoughts and prayers <laughs> to everyone. I'm, I'm going to pray for Heather. This one was fun. And I think, again, in closing, let me repeat myself. We cannot ignore that this exists. We cannot ignore that people are trying to destroy the work of not only decolonizing classical music, but slightly shifting it. This is all framed through the lens of strategic charitable giving, i.e. give money to the organizations who support the things that you like and do the things that you do. And if you don't give it to others, then what is that essentially? You're boycotting them, right? What's another word for boycott? Mm -hmm, yeah, canceling, right? Mm. Yeah, mm, so interesting. Well, if you're not among the people who are going to uh, shift funding to the most conservative of arts organizations, make sure that you're shifting your money somewhere. You know, let's 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 do that. Hell, triloquy.org. There's a donate button. You know, what, whatever nonprofit that you really think is doing the work, put some five dollars, anything. Mm. You know, we're we're dealing with two sides of a coin. I don't see a whole bunch of nuance. We're going to support movement. We're going to press against it. Which side do you want to be on? And that's that. Uh, we're going to transition out of uh, this first movement and into the second movement with a choral work. I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a choir concert that I went to over the weekend. Um, and the closing was a, a South African folk song called Mrs. Gallo. This isn't the a performing ensemble that I heard, but I did find a really incredible rendition of it on YouTube as performed by the Chicago Children's Choir. Here's a Mrs. Gallo, a really incredible South African folk tune to get us into our second movement today. I saw you bobbing your head just a little bit. It's, it's interesting that even acapella choral music can be seasoned a little bit, you know, that <laughs> yeah. in all of these classical genres we're talking about, we have the ability to create an aesthetic that's, you know, actually connecting to some people's bodies and to, to some uh, people's hearts. So, so important. Shout out to the Chicago uh, Children's Choir. And uh, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to highlight a piece of music that we've been spending a little bit of time with since we last recorded. So I'm going to uh, keep us going. So uh, as I mentioned, that piece, Mrs. Gallo, was at the end of a choir concert I went to this past weekend. The choir uh, is One Voice. It's uh, the Twin Cities uh, LGBTQ plus choral 
ensemble mm-hmm. performed uh, all kind of just incredible uh, music from you know the really campy covers of pop tunes. You know they they uh, sure. came on the stage singing talking about my generation. You know mm. that was the theme of the concert. They get into uh, some some really uh, incredible. Uh, so-called serious music, you know, shout out to Nathan Hall. He had a really incredible premiere um, on this concert. Uh, When that recording comes out of that piece, I'll definitely share. But the piece that I wanted to highlight that I heard on that concert was one called Boxes. It's a choral work by Catherine Dalton. And as it was contextualized on this concert, uh, they were talking about uh, the binary sort of gender frame and how so many people don't fit into that. They mm-hmm. critique mm-hmm. the idea of this construct of gender and there being norms around man, woman, male, female. And the and the placement of this piece makes the case that, you know, this is of course something that uh, gender queer and non-gender conforming people deal with regularly. But really in all of our lives, we're always expected to check boxes. You know, when we go right. to the doctor's office, when we apply for a job, we have to fit into all these various boxes. And that isn't the reality that we have to really engage. So anyway, Catherine Dalton, through a piece titled Boxes, engages that conversation really brilliantly. And I wanted to make sure I brought it to Triloquy today. Really great choral aesthetics here and a really great message behind the work as well. Shout out to the uh, Atlanta Women's Chorus featured in that performance. I think it's just, you know, always great, again, for dialogue to be engaged, period, but dialogue to be engaged in a way that, you know, one of these Minnesota choral lovers, you know, can really hear, Mm. you know, expedient means. We talk about that in my Buddhism, maybe going up to someone and saying, gender binary is false, gender is a construct. They can't get behind that. But hearing it, framed in this choral context may be a way mm. that people can think about it. It's, it's, certainly, a, it's a way. It, it certainly got me thinking um, a little bit more about that. Here's a little bit of the end of this piece, Boxes by Catherine Dalton. This new world, we are all free. I think among the many conversations, you know, the nuanced discussions that we can have, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are talking about something new, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. discomfort, not really having the vocabulary, you know, efforts uh, falling short, all of those things. 
are in the hopes toward working toward a new world. And I think if we're really going to, you know, be considerate of that, uh, we have to acknowledge and really accept that we're working toward a reality that we've never seen before. I know it's very scary <laughs> for mm-hmm. some people to not be able to lean on their masculinity, you know, when it comes to certain things, you know, that is uncomfortable for some people to think about. Um, but we got to get there, you know, so that we can all be free. And uh, I, I think this work highlights that beautifully. I remember, Scott, before moving here to Minnesota, mm-hmm. sort of thinking of Minnesota as a choral state and kind of making fun of it all, all those Lutheran choirs. Living here is turning me into a choir concert fan. Like, uh, I'm, I've, I've been enjoying those. So, huh. you know, even more generally speaking, I hope that folks who maybe have never really considered choral music as, you know, one of your prime directives or what you go toward. Mm-hmm. There's all kind of choral music out there. Choral music that you don't have to unpack or interpret, but choral music that's really speaking straight to the point mm. as, as this piece is. So uh, shout out to uh, Catherine Dalton. Shout out to uh, One Voice Mixed Chorus here in the Twin Cities. I can't wait to see uh, many more of your performances. And shout out to everyone who is, you know, making choir happen. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's, who, that's who my shout out goes uh, out to today. All right, what you got? Well, when I first moved here and the first woman that I went out on some dates with accused me of being overly nostalgic. Mm. And I said, wait until you start pushing 40. Just wait. <laughs> oh, okay. So you were robbing the cradle is what was happening. <laughs> I have, I'm kidding. I, Go on. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. But um, And also I brought in something new here to speak to both of those things. The sure. nostalgic factor and uh, something new, like you talked about with the choral music, bringing in something new. If I were going to say I, I'm bringing in a guitar concerto, uh, what composer or player would leap to mind for you first? I'm thinking about uh, the Spanish people. So Torrega, Rodrigo, you know, mm-hmm. all of all. Of, maybe if I want to go South American, um, not Villalobos, uh, who, who's the who's the guy who wears a colonized name? I'm forgetting. Gina Stara, you know, Gina Stara. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> or a, a colonized pronunciation. Anyway, mm. those are the folks that will come straight to mind for me. So. I want to bring you a guitar concerto that was written in 2018 by Konstantin Karavasilis, who uh, grew up in Toronto, but his family uh, has a Greek heritage, so he was leaning heavily into Greek mythology. Mm. But he also borrows a Portuguese word, which is saudaja, and that has a lot of really romantic sort of definitions, yearning, nostalgia, missing, Mm. you know, things like that. And I will say that there are certain parts of this concerto where he does sort of uh, conjure images of the Aranjuez concerto or or, uh, concerto for a gentleman, you know, those Those, Rodrigo pieces. You can sort of hear that homage Mm -hmm. to that lineage. But there was also the part in in the third movement that I brought, that I wanted to bring in, where it's just such a really interesting interaction that the guitarist has with the reed section. And see what you think about it being a reed player.
that's the uh, Tallinn Chamber Orchestra featured there. You know, what what I hear, you know, you specifically asked about the reed playing. I hear the guitar soloist really being um, hugged in a way by the, by the wind instruments, really mm. accompanied in that way. I think mm. uh, traditionally when it comes to a concerto or a solo piece, we think about the soloist on top of the aesthetic with the orchestra like below that. But I think I hear the guitar solo coming through the aesthetic of the orchestra, which I think is very beautiful. And then, of course, you have the glockenspiel or the celeste. I can't tell which one it is uh, just by listening, but, you know, offering those little sprinkles on the top. Maybe it it reminds me of like um, like like starlight. You know, where we're looking at a, at a night sky, and for every one of those glockenspiel hits, you know, one more star becomes up. visual. You know, it, it is vis. I, I was gonna say it's very visually pleasing. This piece of music, and that sounds weird to say, but I think it is. This this piece definitely has a beautiful look to it, for sure. Your synesthet, one sense uh, triggering another. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So what what did that taste like to you? See my my synesthesia. See, it's the uh, it's the more traditional Spanish okay. uh, guitar music that has more of a taste to okay. me. <laughs> gotcha. But 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 this is definitely um, very beautiful. I do have to say, I'm not typically attracted to what I would call slow classical. Like it's really the shredding mm-hmm. that that I spend mm-hmm. uh, a lot of time with. I, uh, what what case. Uh, or, or what place does this more softer aesthetic, and I'm not talking about dynamically, but just slower music. Sure. Why, why is that something that you really uh, value? I mean, it, is it connected to this uh, importance you place on nostalgia and those mm, things? Exactly, because of for me, nostalgia is uh, oftentimes associated with a slow unwrapping of things, you know, almost like you're flipping through a scrapbook mm. or you're opening up uh, things from a, a box that belong to other people and your you know uh, things that your grandmother had or you know you're opening up these little gifts that you had forgotten about and I've been feeling really nostalgia lately I just got back from that trip with my dad mm-hmm. and um, this the I'm appreciating uh, just savoring things and to sit and listen to the slower movements of the, I mean I love the whole uh, concerto but it's the slower movements that just remind me of uh, a nice, wistful walk down through your memories. Mm. Again, let's listen to a, a little bit of the end of this guitar concerto by the composer Calavasilis. Jacob Bangsu playing the guitar along with the Talon Symphony Orchestra. There's something about being in a concert hall and and you get to those silent moments. You know, it's like no one dares move, you know, like especially if it's an inner movement. Mm-hmm. Like and, and there's so <laughs> much care and I don't I don't know. It's it's easy. I, I feel like I can say this, it's easy to play fast and loud on stage when you really have to bring it in that's where you really see the skill of an ensemble and 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 of a 
of a soloist, and that was perfectly displayed there. Incredible piece of music there. Thanks for bringing that in. You got it. All right. Well, we are moving into our third movement this week. And this week, I am very honored to feature the artistic director and president of Sphinx, Afa Dworkin, alongside the founder of Sphinx, Aaron Dworkin. If you don't know the Sphinx organization, you know, catch up. Do do you catch up mustard, as they say, <laughs> do, your, uh, do your homework. But just in case, uh, I'll read their description here. The Sphinx organization is the Detroit-based, nationally-focused social justice organization dedicated to transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts. In 2022, Sphinx is celebrating its most significant milestone to date, its 25th anniversary. And that 25th anniversary is going to be celebrated uh, next week as we're recording this uh, for their uh, annual uh, Sphinx Connect, their conference, all sorts of really incredible performances, all sorts of great uh, conversations and panels. I'm going to be on uh, two this year, so I'm really excited about that. And of course, a really just great family reunion where many of us get to see ourselves and uh, and fellowship uh, for the first time in a while, certainly this time, because yeah. this is the first uh, Sphinx conference since uh, February 2020 when we were there. You know, the first Sphinx conference since uh, the, you know, so-called racial awakening of 2020 and all of the diversity initiatives. So I think it's really going to be huge. So I'm excited to share this conversation that I had with Afa and Aaron Dworkin. To get us into uh, the conversation, I wanted to uh, go back into the into the time capsule of Sphinx competition performances. Again, the composite uh, competition happens uh, at the uh, conference and the competition also features notable performances by soloists who really highlight uh, the the mission of Sphinx to really get into the power of diversity. So I wanted to go back uh, to the 17th annual Sphinx concert. This uh, uh, performance was actually conducted by a member of the Triloquy family, Brandon Keith Brown. It's a oud concerto featuring Simon Shahid. You don't hear an oud concerto every day, no. but it's certainly the kind of music that you hear if you attend Sphinx. So here's a little bit uh, of this performance to get us into my conversation with the one and only Afa Dworkin and Aaron Dworkin of Sphinx. a journey and for me to have had the privilege of having been here from the very beginning as an intern who witnessed this incredible idea come to birth and come to life sphinx has always developed in ways that have been most importantly just responsive to our community so we thought of the competition yes that was the beginning all of the surrounding educational programs grew out of 
the response that we received from our community. It came out of the need expressed by our artists, by parents, by teachers who said, we need to do more because it needs to be more of a wraparound approach to a young person's development. And, and as that continued to happen, and for me, as I've watched Sphinx develop and bring its programming to scale, we've seen that maybe things I've imagined on the artistic side needed to go in a bit of a different direction and that I could never imagine we would need to have three different orchestras in this come in, in the coming months. I literally can't, um, we couldn't figure out a way to just have one orchestra in residence to perform at Kennedy Center at UMS at Detroit Orchestra Hall because the repertoire is so vast and the need and the vision for the programming is so wide. And as such, things have developed in directions that are on some on some level very organic and just responsive to the community and the sector. And in other ways, maybe more unusual. Um, perhaps 10 years ago, I couldn't have imagined the extent to which Sphinx's leadership programs would grow and really put on the map this incredible talent that exists in black and brown communities. Sphinx leaders are now occupying many corner offices and in many ways are dominating the field through their voices and their perspective on leadership and are beginning to advance our field from their positions. It's a program we didn't conceive of 10 years ago, right? We responded to the sector that said, this is great. Decisions are needing to be made by persons who represent these communities. What can Sphinx do about it? Sphinx built a program that now is a pipeline that fortifies the field this way. In the same way, Sphinx Connect was originally envisioned, um, certainly as we were working on it together, was envisioned as a convening for the field. This is now a convening, it's a homecoming for our artists, our leaders, the whole community. It's a place you come to, to exchange ideas. It is not a convening for the leadership of the field, for the elite. It's very much of the artists, for the artists. And, you know, vast majority of the content, as you know, is actually built in collaboration with our leaders, mm-hmm. our own alumni, who are also the ones um navigating and building the content and these conversations. So in this way, probably the biggest lesson for me in this role especially has been um, an opportunity and the importance of listening to our artists and listening to our own alumni and centering their voices. So I think if I could characterize Sphinx in the way it's developed over the last maybe a handful of years is that we have centered the board, the voices of our artists and leaders and um, have helped to craft these stories from first person rather than third person. I mm. think there is the biggest power and that's the direction I see Sphinx going more. I think the, the beauty and the power of the story is that it's told by the people themselves. And in that way, that's probably the most gratifying thing about Sphinx anyways, to be able to make space, make room and center these voices and, and allow the programming to blossom in a way that maybe is far beyond what any, either of our expectations I think were in the beginning. Yeah. And, and Garrett, if I could just uh, play off that, cause I was thinking, you know, the two key things come to mind when I think about this evolution of programming. And this is when we first thought of the idea of, oh, well, we really wanted to have a chamber orchestra that toured. That was the idea. So what we launched and what that original vision was, and this is back when when I was in my my formal role, was let's have the Sphinx Chamber Orchestra. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, and that's how we started um, at at Carnegie Hall and with a conductor and all of that. And and then we were on tour 
um, you know, traveling and throughout, you know, in the Midwest. And we're just at a, a little hotel somewhere kind of hanging out uh, with the musicians. And they're like, you know, we don't need a conductor. And they're <laughs> like, we want to do this ourselves. And they started talking about what that idea was. And we, and so this is the idea of how these programs come to, to be. This is how Sphinx evolves, which is that we didn't just say, of course, we didn't just say no or anything. We're like, ah, okay. So what does that look like? So on and so forth. And then we're like, okay, why don't you try it? And so then later for one of the concerts on that tour, they did a performance without a conductor. And that was the beginning of the idea of the Sphinx virtuosi. So in other words, this idea that there is no one person or leader mm-hmm. who can sit and say, here's exactly what needs to get done and how it gets done, et cetera. Sphinx really is the, the, the culmination, the amalgamation of all of the voices and the way it operates, and especially the way Afa has led it for the past six to seven years, um, is with that um, intent and that um, reality. Um, and the other that I would share, uh, and of course, the Sphinx Virtuosi now, right, have gone on and it's extraordinary and done things that the Sphinx Chamber Orchestra never could have done, uh, which is what's so powerful. And of course, they have such a strong voice in the programming, right? Uh, all of those types of things. And the other was uh, was what started out as SphinxCon. So of course, we were like, okay, we need a conference. We want to have, there is no space for all of us to come gather, et cetera. And initially, my thinking of that was, okay, so we need to bring, bring the biggest, you know, traditional leaders and the biggest organizations, they need to be represented. So that was a big focus. How do we bring them in as speakers, so on and so forth, right? We need all these big influentials, many of whom, because of the lack of diversity in our field, don't reflect our community. Um, and so we did that and we struggled for a couple of years with, you know, maybe a couple hundred people came and it's kind of a smattering. And then this was very early on and Afa's uh, tenure as she took on the full leadership of the organization. She was already leading all the art- artistic programming, et cetera, and all of that. Um, and, and she reimagined it and said, you know, this needs to be more for us, by us. And in that switched the focus to how do we bring our community and investing that, developing fellows so that we have a group of the fellows who became the core focus for the convening and doing that. She's like, we do this, then they'll come. The big wigs, the influentials, they'll come. Let's do this. And the, and it completely flipped. And now it's over a thousand people who are coming uh, you know, to Sphinx Connect as it was then renamed. So those are just two examples of these evolutions and kind of how they take place and hearing those uh, other voices. Yeah, and I'll affirm the the power of uh, the Sphinx Virtuosi. I, I saw them in uh, in concert two or three months ago here in Minneapolis, and it's just a brilliant experience. You, I definitely don't have to be talked into conductorless music making if, <laughs> if anyone ha- has that truth. But uh, Afa, I did want to talk a little bit um, about the uh, the upcoming conference. So uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, the past two conferences. Ha- excuse me, had to be uh, postponed. I often uh, think about the fact that Sphinx 2020 was for many people the last sort of hurrah before Mm -hmm. all of our worlds changed. I wonder uh, what have been uh, some of your learnings doing the two virtual conferences and uh, how that'll impact this first in-person conference that's coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Tons of lessons in that. Um, 
And we liked, well, a couple of our live performances had to actually be postponed. So the Sphinx Symphony and the Exigence Vocal Ensemble, instead of appearing last year at Kennedy Center and University Musical Society, they've actually been postponed, but rescheduled to occur late January this year. So those we're really looking forward to, and it's directly following Sphinx Connect. However, transitioning our programming into the digital sphere over the last two years, while soul crushing for many members of the family, because we couldn't be together in many ways, as you know, Sphinx Connect is a family reunion. Being in person was a big deal. But I was so, there were two huge lessons for me. As we transitioned to the digital space, we held our very first and then second Sphinx competition and congruent with that Sphinx Connect. I was overjoyed and so touched by the growth in participation. We had people from 11 countries tune in and participate to Sphinx Connect. In that way, technology allowed us to democratize that content and make it accessible and available internationally where it would otherwise probably not be possible. And we received such incredible warm feedback about how much this is needed elsewhere in the world. It's not just an American conversation. It's really a world conversation. Um, The other piece is that we also flipped our model because in the middle of that lockdown and being forced off stage, we thought about, okay, what's going to happen to the family? How how are people going to register? What platform are we using? How do we make it most user-friendly? How does it resemble that energy that's so fiery when we're together? Mm -hmm. So we came up with these um, new platforms and new formats for it. And what was so incredible for me is that we moved to the pay what you choose platform idea framing. And it was done specifically very intentionally, pay what you choose, not pay what you can. Um, and, And what I saw was incredible. First of all, the support from members of the family, but also students, young people was incredible. They didn't have to pay anything in order to tune in and participate and engage, but they chose to because they knew that what we were doing is we were actually galvanizing the support and then turning it right back around because also during Sphinx Connect year 2021, we initiated um, a pretty significant relief fund to artists. We were able to take those resources, turn it right back around to the artist community. So that was incredible and touching and moving to see. The other piece is that we were able to engage some artists and leaders who otherwise couldn't come to Detroit in the middle of January. They would otherwise be on tour. But since we were all in lockdown, we were able to get incredible caliber of artists and speakers involved. And the conversation in some ways, I think, took things to the next level. I was both years to see the robust nature with which people would contribute to community circles, because the way we determine themes at Sphinx Connect, as well as actual content for conversations each year is we have community circles, as you know, we get people together from various um, facets of the industry and we talk about what's most important. And that's how we figure out a focus for every year. And our artists and members of the lead family Our advisory board members help us figure out a focus and figure out these themes. So seeing how passionately people engaged in that and strong opinions that they had about what should and should not be part of the content was it gave me all the fire and energy that I needed to keep planning and also um, showed us what technology could do. And in that way, I think using technology as a guidepost for innovation, for accessibility, something we're continuing. It's going to be an in-person convening. 
Um, it's going to be an in-person competition. I'm knocking on wood as I'm saying these. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's amazing. At the same time, there will continue to be people who can't afford to come here. So leaving that option of tuning in, not to idly participate and listen in, but actually have interactivity is something we're very seriously investing in. So we now have an app and a platform that's going to continue to make this accessible so that people around the world who can't necessarily afford to be here as much as it is awesome in January in Detroit can continue to participate, can voice their feedback, ask questions directly of the panelists and the plenary speakers and so on and so forth. So in that way, there have been countless lessons, one more compelling than the other. And, and also, honestly, watching my team go at it and immediately drop everything and just use their agility and their genius thinking and flexibility to immediately switch gears and be like, we're still having the best convening ever. And, and finally, realizing um, the growth and participation was also gratifying. We went from having around a thousand people to nearly three thousand the first year, and that was that was incredible. It grew the Sphinx family worldwide that much more significantly. And and I would imagine uh, even grew the impact of Sphinx, you know, which is the theme for the uh, upcoming conference. Aaron, you know, when I think about impact, I think about uh, the distance between. Uh, awareness or knowledge of the issue of a lack of diversity and the continued status quo of most orchestras not reflecting uh, demographically the communities that they exist in. From your perspective, I wonder what is that in between? What's keeping the results from meeting or matching the awareness and levels of hope for impact in, in 2022? Yeah, so yeah, such a such a great question. Um, so I think several things. I think one, until recent years, until really the past several years, when there really seemed to be a shift in mindset because of a lot of external uh obviously factors that happened in the country. Um uh many orchestras really weren't taking it that seriously. And as as a sector, um, it was really not being prioritized. I do feel, we still don't have enough data yet, but I feel like there has been at least a seismic shift in that mentality and that approach. And I think we're already starting to see that at least in repertoire perform, potentially where within a year or two, I'm expecting and hoping that we will have seen an exponential increase in the works by composers of color being performed, which in some ways is one of the easiest things that orchestras can do because the works are already there. Mm -hmm. And before they just apparently didn't have awareness of them and just needed to reach out uh, you know, to people like any of us here and, and to be like, oh, we can actually diversify our, our repertoire. So I think that's happening. And that is great because it really didn't happen with any seismic shift for most of the past. 25 years. It was just incremental. So I think there was a sense that, oh, okay, we're really having a, a significant shift here with that. We have not seen that, of course, um, on stage in terms of seismic. We have seen that happen incrementally. Um, and that is good. And especially, and Af, of course, can talk about this with Nas and Sopa and the specific, these are very significant systemic programs of Sphinx that are absolutely making a difference and are and are comprising a significant portion of the musicians of color who uh, are entering and are playing with orchestras. But it is not um, 
significant enough where we can look and say, ah, okay, we're getting to some representative, you know, percentages in, in orchestras. Um, and at this point, I think that there are a couple of things. One, I'm hoping that this will continue and we will continue to see a much, not just more change, but an increase in the rate of change, mm -hmm. which is important. Um, uh, but we have certain structural things that are problematic, right? We have tenure, we have um, screened mostly auditions. Um, and, uh, and to be frank, there are differing viewpoints within the community of color in the arts and in musicians about these particular um, structural programs. But what it does mean, no matter what, is that structurally, it makes it quite difficult to have exponential change. So, you know, if you've got an orchestra of 100 people and there's tenure and only a couple positions open, um, unless you have something, you know, kind of um, unrealistic um, of every new person being hired, being a person of color, um, then you're going to, by definition, just literally from the open availability of numbers, only have incremental change even remotely possible. Um, so if you were to even take, you know, kind of silly things and just say, okay, so for every open position in a key major orchestra, and if, you know, 20% of all of those available positions were filled by a person of color, it would be decades before we would ever reach, right, um, representative uh, um, representation in orchestras. So there is certain systemic issues that I do believe on a personal note um could be looked at could be modified i do think we have to be innovative i think some orchestras maybe uh are beginning to look at that and i think that nas and sopa are a great structural impact um but ideally i think that um we need to do more and and orchestras need to do more Alpha, i want to ask you about this idea of the incremental change i understand uh conceptually that you know, metaphorically speaking, the ocean is millions of drops, you know, and 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 they add up. Um, but at the same time, there are so many people, and I'll include myself in this, that tend to be a little impatient. You know, mm -hmm. incremental change isn't always or is, is seldom fast enough. How do you engage that dialogue, the importance of incremental change versus people wanting to see the change now? It's one of the tougher parts of my job. I push, I push for both. I think there are, as much as I'd love to wave a magic wand and see every orchestra be representative of the community that it serves or is residing in, and as much I want, as much as I want to see C-suite roles in major institutions occupied by Black and Brown leaders, not just smaller and mid-sized, which seems like a mitigated risk for many. I know that it's not realistic and to stop my foot and say this needs to happen overnight because it's been centuries doesn't tend to work. Mm -hmm. So where possible, we try to look at what can Sphinx do directly versus what is work that necessarily requires the work of others. And wherever it requires the work of others, I find that it's important to not necessarily, I hate to use the cliche, to meet people where they're at, but to, to recognize their current capacity and help chart a, um, a direction for them from here's where you are, here's where you need to go. I will push you, 
but you have to go and then work together with people to get someplace. No social movement that is an example of real change has existed when only one person led, right? So it requires all of us as much as we like or dislike it. I can work with one or two orchestras or in my case, 113, but I really need to move nearly 700. So in that way, any change we make is uh, strictly, theoretically speaking, is somewhat incremental. You know, on the one hand, and then versus things that can be done directly by Sphinx, which is commissioning of composed of color, committing to every program that we create together, for example, Virtuosi and I, to say that it's going to be specifically and intentionally music by black and brown composers, where we're going to give the voice and priority and um, and and leadership uh, space really to to these composers. We're not going to replicate what's done by other collectives or artists. We're going to do something different. So that's something we can do directly. Even those changes, though, require working with others. I have to say, for at least a decade of programming for the virtuosi, I would hear consistently from <clears throat> presenters around the country. They would say. This is such adventurous programming. It's really wonderful what you're putting forward. And you always know the butt is coming. Yeah. You always be like, <laughs> but you know, I got to think about my ticket sales. So we need to work together to really work on accessibility and some recognition. And for so many years, we would work with them until we didn't, until we said this is not, Sphinx Virtuosi does not play all of the Mendelssohn Chamber Symphonies. We also will not do Britain. It's wonderful and exists, and you can definitely go to collectives who do that beautifully, and we're just not one of those collectives. What we bring is new voices. What we bring is an anthology of composers who lived and worked before. We have spent the first 10 years, for example, of the virtuosi history trying to do both and sort of prove our ground and say we can play the so-called canon and yet we can evolve it. So I think now's the time to not only evolve the canon through action, but also advocate with presenting houses and say, we are, you should also. That is what I'm commissioning. If you want to, you can commission it with me and we can perform it together or else we should probably look at another structure. And I, I will say right now it looks stark, but all of that change had to be preceded by measures and years and months and phone calls and emails and Zooms of incremental change. Mm -hmm. So I think every time someone gets a little frustrated or disheartened, I remind them that the ocean is in fact a collection of droplets of water. And the more droplets we have, and it takes all of us, the quicker we get to the ocean. And I think we can and will get there. It's just, I think no matter what, we have to stay persistent and absolutely relentless, and and we'll get there. Yeah, Aaron, I'll oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, if I could just add on to that to say that I I really am more optimistic than I ever have been because especially what Af was just describing prior to the murder of George Floyd, this was not the mentality and approach. Basically, the Sphinx virtuosi couldn't have toured with only a program of Black and Latinx composers. It took the murder, the public murder in a city street um, of an African-American and the resulting shift of awareness. And now what's very interesting is that almost all presenters welcome mm -hmm. the program. <laughs> uh, and so, so Sphinx is able in certain ways, I believe, to be, um, um, 
more exponential and less incremental, but because of certain outside factors that helped to shift what was otherwise a very slow plotting, you know, constant kind of fight against. And so I'm really am very optimistic because I think while it took this horrible event um, and the subsequent issues to kind of shift the mentality, I do believe that for the vast majority of presenters, orchestras, et cetera, it's an authentic desire now. And there's just a shifting of the baseline. And so I think now is a time better than any for us now to be able to really say, how can we take what is that shift in mentality and have it bring about systemic change that will be you know, present 10, 20, several decades down the road and won't just be a passing kind of fad. Yep. And, and I actually wanted to stick to that uh, topic of programming with you, Aaron, you know, and, and the conversations that I get in with, you know, uh, the orchestras that I work with through my work, you know, that conversation, you know, always comes up that Alpha was was mentioning, well, the programming is adventurous, but we're worried about ticket sales. You know, from my perspective, uh, a concert that featured Beyonce may be adventurous, but ticket sales would not be a problem. And it wouldn't be a problem for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Do you think there uh, or do you see or identify a direct correlation between what is uh, defined as adventurous programming and engaging new audiences and engaging new communities? Do you do you see a, a relationship there? Yes. So I have seen very little, I could almost say almost no evidence to support the foundational approach that so many institutions seem to take that adventurous programs means lower ticket sales. Mm -hmm. I have just not seen it. And I certainly haven't seen it with Sphinx programs as evidence just at Carnegie Hall and basically a full house, et cetera, with, you know, uh, the most adventurous uh, programming, um, et cetera. And not just Sphinx as well, but gateways, et cetera, right? All of this. So, so there's, I do not see evidence. I see lots of times where they say it and they fear it. And then my response is always, okay, well, I'll tell you what, how about we test it? Mm-hmm. And let's see, why don't we do this? And then let's see. Um, and I would say one additional thing, which is that people do what is familiar. So when you have large institutions, they might then go to their marketing department and say, oh, but if the marketing department is used to marketing a standard program to the standard people, et cetera, they're like, well, we're not sure what we could. I We can't count on anything. I wouldn't want to write. And everyone's worried because now if we don't have an audience, me, the marketing person, I'm not going to look good. I may not get a good evaluation because we had a low ticketed concert or the CEO is going to not feel because they didn't meet ticket sales. And now they've got, you know, uh, you know, a deficit in their budget or right. So people have their real world daily concerns, especially as it relates to their own evaluations and compensation or jobs even. So that's how they're thinking. So the best that we can do is to get them out of that to an innovative space where you say, well, let's try this. And especially a big thing Sphinx tries to do with partnerships. And I'm sure Af can talk about this, of course, uh, way better than I can, especially for the past six or seven years, is Sphinx actively in a partnership looks to see what are those hesitations or worries that a partner would have and how can Sphinx help alleviate or leverage it to encourage or create a space so the partner can actually explore and empower that. And then, of course, 
you know, things can really, you know, um, expand from there. But basically, in the short answer to your question, I do not think it's a legitimate concern, um, uh, especially when the programming is right, right? There's always just like, you know, there's there's terrible music by composers <laughs> of, of color, just like there's terrible music by, you know, uh, white composers, you know? Uh, so it's that it has to be programmed, it has to be thoughtful. Um, and a lot of institutions may not have people internal who really know the breadth of work and who yeah. really are have necessarily maybe the capacity currently to program a really exciting, innovative, adventurous program, uh, right? And so again, Sphinx looks to say not to denigrate or say, oh, that's terrible. Why don't they have that? They should have all of these things, but rather to say, what can we do to help empower them so they can and we can partner together because ultimately then Sphinx knows we can do so much more with them than if we just do it separately without them. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, Afa, yeah, please. Yeah, I think it ties in a little bit to your first question and also just immediate preceding question that relates to leadership and um, significant change versus incremental change. That'll, I think part of Sphinx's responsibility, I believe in the way that we both see it, and certainly I've tried to continue to exercise that since Aaron's transition, in that to see Sphinx's role as, yes, a collaborator, yes, a leader, in that we have to set an example, which we feel good about and feel that there's integrity in that example, but also try to hold our actual partners um, accountable for what they say they're doing. In that way, when the murder of George Floyd happened, we didn't just make a statement and said, okay, cool, hopefully y'all will come to your senses and start programming correctly. We've devised a whole set of resources to say, as you come to me and tell me I'm trying to program, here's where you start. Here's a place that we can even lead you beyond Sphinx. Here's other resources. Here's a database. When we launched NAS, we didn't just say, hopefully you'll come and work with us. We launched a national database saying you can search for people. And and whenever you're telling me I can't find musicians, you can because it's geographically and by instrument searchable. So you should do that yourself. You should do that work. And in this past two years, particularly during the lockdown, we've doubled down on that. And we've said to orchestras, if you want to be a partner in good standing, NAS and SOPA will not give you just a stamp of approval. We will say, here's the guidelines by which you need to abide. And actually, when we do the excerpt competition, We don't want you to just say, this is wonderful and congratulate the musicians who win the excerpts. You have to also say that in order to be a participating partner in good standing, you need to provide a minimum of week-long paid performance opportunity for any of the finalists in the competition. Mm -hmm. And, And that way, what you're doing is you're saying that these musicians are not just the ones I help to select and advance and then hopefully advance the semifinals and onward in actual opening auditions, but I'm also willing to engage on my own stage. And that's how I am in good standing. And in this way, as we developed guidelines for audition tenure and promotion, we realized everything is subject to their local negotiations, but there's certain absolute non-negotiable elements. And we have had partners who step outside of those guidelines and best practices. And we have had to respectfully say, then you're not a partner in good standing. So sometimes this work is done quietly, but it has to be steadfast. And it has to be steadfast about programming during Sphinx Connect. We have a whole conversation that's titled literally Beyond Still in Price. 
Mm-hmm. We have music beyond the incredible Florence mm-hmm. Price and beyond the amazing William Grant still. We have to, it's great that we're programming better on stages, but we really have a lot more that we can program. So it doesn't have to be about which performance of Florence Price's second movement or the Afro-American Symphony is the best one. We can also create reference recordings of dozens and dozens of Black composers and still never be even done scratching the surface. So the idea is to keep pushing and keep pushing. Most of that change can be interpreted as incremental, but it has to be consistent and and honest. And I think eventually it leads to more more systemic results. And if I could just add, add on to that, that I think one key thing that is an approach of Sphinxes is that for the most part, other than rare kind of very planned public um, statements like I did years ago at Carnegie Hall about orchestras. Um, Sphinx tends to take the approach to not call out Mm -hmm. um, bad actors, if you will, in the field. Um, As Alpha's mentioned, you know, certain orchestras who may, who didn't, you know, participate or didn't do, right, these core basic things that are required, say, for for this program. And as opposed to kind of putting it then out there on social media or whatever, can't believe X orchestra not doing, you know, whatever, da-da-da, that Sphinx has found that, again, looking at the long game of impact, that finding and identifying partners who are going to be able to to do this work brings about far more impact than the brief calling out of those who aren't. Um, And that ultimately, because Sphinx is like, ultimately it's in five years, are we gonna realize the change that we're trying to bring about? Is that that's what matters. How do we get there? Um, So just that I think that's an approach that that Sphinx has, has had and has worked in terms of actual impact. Um, and, and the other aspect that I was going to share that I was thinking of is, is this ongoing kind of doubling down and going off of all these great questions you've been asking about how do the programs evolve and so on and so forth, which is this idea of partnering and collaborating that Sphinx sat down and we said years ago, several years ago now. Um, uh, so there is this systemic work that needs to take place in the field and Sphinx cannot do all of it. So how could Sphinx empower others and encourage others and be the catalyst? And that was the development of the Sphinx Venture Fund. Mm -hmm. Basically multiple grants each year of $100,000 usually each to truly empower systemic change for others to do, right? So Sphinx could look and say, you know, um, you know, we think there really should be a vocal competition like the strings competition, or there should be an instrumental competition, or there should be this uh, composer databases, right? Or any of these other uh, programs and projects. And to say, Sphinx shouldn't be the one just doing all of these. How about if Sphinx can utilize and encourage and gain resources to actually then invest in these types of additional systemic things. And so that is what Sphinx is doing in the venture fund, usually two to three at least each year, um, now for several years, so that over the span of five years, there ideally could be 10 to 15 additional Sphinxes out there doing this type of work. And so that's also another component of just that broad ecosystem that Sphinx is trying to uh, be a part of. 
Yep. And Alpha, I, I want to quickly highlight uh, a point that Aaron made and, and ask your thoughts. You know, the the uh, uh, the call out culture, as it were, cer certainly has become a sort of a thing. And, you know, people who are critical of Sphinx are critical mainly for that reason. I, I wonder what would be your guidance uh, to people, you know, uh, leaders, uh, as it were, in dealing with critique when you know the intentions are there and even though the work is there and the track record is there but there's still the critique well what, what would be your guidance on engaging that or, or dealing with it i think if i could offer guidance i would say most critique that's offered um, is something we all should welcome when someone is offering constructive feedback in particular um, sometimes that leads to remarkable breakthroughs that we ourselves as leaders may be incapable of seeing due to being, you know, potentially too engrossed into something that is our life's work. So it's very difficult to just look from, from the side and be able sure. to see something that's critically missing. So most of that feedback is something that should be interpreted as a gift and something, uh, a dialogue in which to engage. I think very rare cases um, and, and actually beyond that, soliciting it is probably something that I would also encourage because it creates a culture of real intellectual inquiry and hopefully growth. Without growth, growth or not, right? doesn't matter what we do. If, if we don't grow, we don't continue to evolve what we're doing. Um, if Sphinx remained committed steadfast to its you know first or second or third iteration of programming, it wouldn't be very far. And in many ways, it is because we both have tried to stay open to not just inquiry, but feedback and, and many times critical feedback. There are rare occasions when I believe um, a pure call out can occur. And it is it most often I try to introspect and think about where the person is coming from. Many times it's because they're personally frustrated with not enough change. Mm -hmm. And then you introspect into that and you come from a place of empathy and see if there is something that actually could be potentially learned and shifted and changed. And, and I think ultimately and finally, while I do believe collaborative approach and positive reinforcement, frankly, um, and constantly showing and trying to demonstrate through action as well as advocacy what can be done together, constantly working kind of together to do this from time to time, just the way I think the nature of life is, um, a call out is necessary. <laughs> I think sometimes it's extremely important to have a thoughtful, formulated, but an intentional um, called to speak truth to power that is also necessary at times. I do not believe, as much as I'm generally a collaborative and a peaceful person, and I love to work with people, and I constantly think I learn more if I involve as many people as possible. I think our programming wouldn't be where it is, etc. Even with funding, I mean, I encourage on the team cross departmental collaborations, because that's where real innovation comes. People who are not day-to-day -day doing something have the best of ideas, definitely. Young people have tons of amazing ideas too. Um, but I think as much as possible, while that's the norm and definitely very positive, I do not believe we would be working with 113 orchestras today if back nine or 11 years ago, Aaron's address was not a truth to power call. Um, if if that didn't, I'm not sure that we could. At that time, there were many poignant, important things said 
specifically on one of the most revered stages in the world, right? And it was very much to wake up the field and say, if we don't do something, we're doing less than what we used to do. And one of those elements was whenever there's an opening on stage or backstage or at an executive office, nobody calls here and says, I'm trying to fill it with a person of color and nobody tries to seek it out. And I don't think we would be where we are, which is quite overwhelmed with the amount of inquiry today mm-hmm. um, if that didn't occur. So I think a periodic um, catalyst is what's necessary. And sometimes that most often that catalyst is critical. It's still a positive thing. It just needs to be there too. Um, I think it's also extremely important that it be intentional and not reactive, not emotion-based, but really, yes, heartfelt, but also strategically positioned. Um, it's also really, really important to figure out who should be doing the calling out versus who should be doing the collaborative piece. And I think in that way, honestly, our partnership has has been important because sometimes we choose who will be which voice. And having the founder nearby in this way and as a sounding board and um, to be able to work through those wisdoms and decide kind of what's the right framing for something um, is extremely important. So I think overall, any critical feedback great good to have well and I, I, oh, oh, go ahead yeah okay oh, just add just to add quickly to it that and i think this is a key approach of sphinxes which is like and especially the best vehicle for this is sphinx connect which is that sphinx has certain thoughts and about approach and and as we mentioned right kind of focusing on kind of collaborating and maybe being quiet and behind the scenes and behind the scenes by the way sphinx has a lot of these call out conversations with organizations, especially some big institutions, but they're just quiet. They're private mm-hmm. to get them. They're, you know, major orchestras do certain things that, you know, we're like, what on earth is is happening? And so Sphinx has had private meetings with them to be like, how can you be doing this, et cetera? Because the goal is not to call them, right? The goal is how can we get the institution to shift and to change? Right. And so Sphinx looks and says, Will we can we create the change this way, et cetera? Um, but then also just to reinforce what I've said is that sometimes those callouts help Sphinx because there's the big call out that happens. And they say, you know, somewhere, you know, like, you know, I've got you know, dear friends we went to college with who have a much different approach. Uh, and they think there needs to be the call out. And they're like, you know, they're part of the critical, like you guys are too quiet, soft on this stuff or whatever. Um, and but then that helps leverage sphinx to then say oh and then and and sometimes it's the partnership of the call out and then the collaboration that sometimes brings about the most change um but the biggest thing i think that's so important is there are a lot of times institutions where if someone or there's a voice that is kind of disagreeing or thinks there should be a different approach that institutions like either sidelines or is like okay we're not going to have anything to do with them Sphinx has the complete opposite. And so Sphinx Connect, you will always see every year, there are panels, voices, you know, programming related to it that sometimes is diametrically opposed to what Sphinx might think is an approach because Sphinx Mm -hmm. believes that the conversation is what's most important, the dialogue about it. And actually at last year's Sphinx Connect, dialogue about exactly this. How should, do we call out on social media or not, et cetera, and and even having that. So I think Sphinx is very much believes in that. Um, And in a similar way about the supporting other organizations, a lot of times organizations like, oh, someone else is doing the space. Ah, it's it's a threat. It's right, it's that. Sphinx 
actually is fundraising to be able to fund similar projects to Sphinx, right? That's literally one of the goals. So Sphinx just has a completely different approach, which is the rising tide. The mission is way more important, even more important than any singular institution. Um, and so Sphinx's whole goal is how do we make the change happen? Like what you were asking before of, you know, how do we see the change that, you know, hasn't been realized yet? That's what Sphinx is solely focused on. Yeah, I have one more question and I'll uh, offer it to Afa. But before I do that, Aaron, I wonder if you can tell the folks how they can uh, learn more about the upcoming convening and uh, join us all there in Detroit. All right. Well, absolutely. Well, everything that you need, just go to sphinxmusic.org. Uh, it is all there. Um, and we definitely encourage, and especially even though, yes, there are, you'll be able to access it virtually. Everybody knows there is no substitute for being there in person. I cannot wait there. And I know so many people you said, you know, always say this, but I just get refueled, you know, um, emotionally, um, spiritually, musically, artistically. And the things that happen walking down a hallway, talking to someone after a session, it just I find there's the things I could never have planned or intended happen coming out of a Sphinx Connect. So I definitely am encouraging everyone to be there. I think there's just so many people who want to physically just reconnect with each other about these issues that we all care so much about. Um, so I encourage uh, everyone to, to, to do that and, uh, and join us uh, in January. Yeah, I've I've paid my registration. I can't wait to wait. Can't wait to be there. Uh, so, Afa, I, I wanted to ask you this in closing. So, I I feel like over the years, many of us have found comfort in acknowledging that the work is ongoing. That we shouldn't approach it um, as having a finish line. At the same time, I've recently thought about the idea of that being a very somber truth for some people. The idea that, wow, is this always going to be my reality? And when with, with, when trying to engage in this field, I wonder how um, you face the idea of the work being ongoing in a more positive or encouraging way. That's a great question. To me, there is beauty in that, in the fact that the work is ongoing. Because when I think of it that way, I, I reflect upon the fact that quarter of a century ago, there would always almost never be a young black or brown soloist in front of an orchestra. Now this happens 30 times a year. Is that enough? Not nearly. But can we look toward maybe 100 times a year? Absolutely. Um, there would not be, you know, we started with one orchestral partner um, in back in 1998. There's 113. Can we look towards 600, 700 who are the members of the league? Absolutely. In that way, the, the beauty of it is that as it unfolds and as the work is ongoing, the surprising and un, and thing, unusual or maybe unpredictable things happen, which make the work that much more beautiful and I think deep. Because if I were to simply say, I wanna be done and I need the orchestras to be reflective, I need the percentage of black composers to be not at 8%, but at 14 right now, because that's what around the population, I need the Latinx composers to be nearly 18 or 19, period. Anything else is not progress. I think if I were to simply flip the page and say, that's where we are, I think we wouldn't know the journey of the growth mm -hmm. and what other things we might uncover. 
how much more talent we might find and in, encounter. And finally, I think it's all reflected in the younger generation of the Sphinx family. Every year, there's a call for entries for our youth programs, the creative youth development programs. Every year, we think about who will be the newest crop for the junior competition winners? Is there any concern that there's maybe like not an immediate pipeline? Or is there any concern that we'll have enough applicants for the Sphinx Performance Academy? And I'm always overwhelmed by the number of new names I've never seen before. We just finished working with the National Screening Committee. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of young people who are in their teens who play at the highest level and have to fight to be in the Sphinx competition just to get there. Mm -hmm. And I think in that way, if the if the work wasn't um, didn't have this continuum, we wouldn't get to hear all of them. We wouldn't get to be part of their development, their journey, and then getting all the way up there and shining and becoming stars and really attaining careers that they can be proud of as well. I think it's a process and the process itself is a privilege and a joy to be part of. Um, I think many of us have the same North Star. Those who have been working in this far longer than I have um, for decades and decades upon decades, many of our mentors have at times, I think, felt dis disheartened and wondered how much progress we're actually making. But in, in other ways, when they're a part of, say, the Carnegie Hall celebration of the Virtuosi, when they come to Sphinx Connect to watch Denise Graves and Michael R. Jackson headline this convening for Black and Brown people, I think in this way, we know that the work is continuous. We probably will not necessarily witness the end of it. But the process is evolving every year and, and all the time. And the voices that are leading us are that much more powerful and compelling. So there's only positive that I see in all of this. finale there from the symphonietta number one by composer coleridge taylor perkinson not to be confused with samuel coleridge taylor but which a, i've done right but but a more contemporary uh composer who was named after samuel coleridge taylor his name is coleridge taylor perkinson if you're unfamiliar with his music definitely go check it out a very extremely important uh black uh american composer who created aesthetics uh just like that as performed by sphinx virtuosi huge 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 Thank you uh, to Afa and Aaron for joining me on uh, Triloquy. I have to say, Scott, when we formed this show, they were definitely uh, among the first round of people that I knew I wanted to be featured on uh, Triloquy. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the vulnerability that they offered in our conversation, really acknowledging what many people uh, complain about when it comes to Sphinx, you know, not being forward enough or fiery enough, but mm -hmm. you can't deny the the impact that they've had on the ecosystem and certainly the conversations that we're having surrounding change in classical music. I can remember years ago, 
I've been going to the Sphinx conferences for over a decade now. I remember the concept of equity really being clarified for me at a Sphinx conference, you know, not to mention all of the times they, they've given me the opportunity to uh, stand on stage to, you know, to, to talk my shit, do, do all of that. And mm-hmm. the, the impacts that the positive impacts that that's had on my life and, and my career. So, you know, really a vital organization. I'm so grateful to have had their uh, leader and their founder uh, on the show. There are going to be a lot of people this year, Scott, going to the Sphinx Conference for the first time. Again, this is the first Sphinx Conference since uh, the uh, murder of George Floyd, since all of these different diversity initiatives. I know there are going to be a lot of people there who just are are fulfilling you know what they see as their mission and their work by engaging what this conference has to offer. As someone who's been, I wonder what would be your advice to all of the first-timers flying to Detroit next week. I can tell you as a middle-aged white man, what, what it's like. Um, I found it to be very welcoming. I mean, uh, there, I, I didn't feel um, left out at any point, but I also was told later that there were times when I went to get drinks for people and folks were asking you, all right, what's up with this guy? Mm-hmm. So just know that that's going to happen. And I would encourage you to do a lot of listening listen more than you talk. You might, you can remember all the interviews that we conducted. I interjected very little. Mm-hmm. I'd shut up and listen. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that that was the, the best move for me in, I would probably, I would probably step out a little bit more now if I were to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, we got to get you back there. The, the advice that I would give to the first timers is yes, to really listen and to center other perspectives, but also affirm. If you hear something uh, at a panel uh, at, at the bar between events or, or wherever that, you know, some people would consider provocative or too far left or too radical. If you really do feel that way, I think it goes a long way uh, to affirm the people who also have those visions. Again, mm. this is a conference. The, these are folks that m- many of us, we only see each other once a year or whenever this conference happens. You know, really aligning uh, what we think, how we approach this conversation, all the way to the point of affirmation, I think is very important and public affirmation at that. So that that's the advice uh, I would give. Can't wait to be there. Can't wait to uh, present and uh, can't wait to see what everybody else has in store. All right, so we're about to jump into the final movement, the Triloquy movement for this week. And we started with a little Kendrick, so I want to transition into this final movement with a little music by composer, Pulitzer Prize winning (laughs) composer uh, Kendrick Lamar. This tune is sort of themed, uh, at least uh, references, the person whose work we're going to honor in today's final movement. So here's a little bit uh, from Kendrick, uh, a track here called Backseat Freestyle to get us into our final movement. Kendrick have a dream So we got Kendrick Lamar there. He's making reference, of course, to uh, the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but he's also talking about money and power and those sorts of things. And uh, in addition to creating some (laughs) cohesion uh, around uh, Kendrick Lamar sort of being a character in this opus, I also wanted to bring that in as a way of introducing uh, the 
the uh, speech excerpt of Martin Luther King Jr. that I wanted to share. You know, again, we talk a lot about I have a dream. I've always highlighted a letter from Birmingham jail a lot, especially on this show. But his view of capitalism uh, and its connection to racism and as a, a an oppressor of all of us is something that I don't think we get into a whole bunch. So here's a bit uh, from a speech where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking to uh, this issue of capitalism, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about it on the other side. The greed and exploitation which create the sector of poverty in the midst of wealth. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves. and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. So that is definitely not the whole I have a dream thing that we that we tend to center in in years past and, and going forward. I like to highlight Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail, mm-hmm. where he really talks about moderate perspectives, lukewarm perspectives being more harmful than the straight up Klan member, than the, uh, uh, I think he says white citizens council member. You know, I think that's a very important point to understand. I understand the emotions that can be attached to that for a lot of people. Um, But even beyond that, I really have been so intrigued by the degree to which I've been learning about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as an anti-capitalist. In his letter to Coretta Scott um, back in July of 1952, he wrote, I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism started out with a noble and high motive, but like most human systems, it fell victim to the very thing it was revolting against. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. We will hear, I have a dream, Dr. Martin Luther King wanted equality from all people, from your most progressive, you know, news outlets and commentators, all the way over to your Fox Newses and and these places. Everyone claims the the valor and the um and the let's all come togetherness of Martin Luther King Jr. on the surface. But you cannot tell me that everyone across the spectrum would agree or be happy to hear about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. describing himself as socialist. No. You know, what do you, what do you, what do you think about that specific framing? Again, we can talk about the way that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about the white moderate and all of those things. Mm-hmm. How significant to you is it to highlight Martin Luther King Jr.'s anti-capitalist perspective and anti-capitalist work? That's new for me. That's recent because I think I've mentioned before that when we studied Martin Luther King in school, it was in units, Mm -hmm. right? So you're on it for like a week and a half, right? Yeah. And then you move on to the next unit. And we didn't get to that part. And people now today love to cherry pick the stuff that they can hold up as like, I believe this portion of what he says without actually providing context of what came before and after the quote. And it must have been about 
2012, 2013, I was still on Facebook and I shared a quote that was attributed to Dr. King, but was not. Mm -hmm. So you got to be careful on that too. But um, if you want to have some fun, uh, go over to the uh, internet and do a quick search for all of the members of Congress and Senate who are uh, there now who were around when they were voting on whether or not to make uh, his uh, th make this uh, a national holiday. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who are still in office who voted no. So, I mean, you got to be really racist to not take a day off work. <laughs> you really got to hate black people. I mean, damn, you know. <laughs> but and all, all I'm saying is um, uh, there is so much more to the man. Um, music was huge in his life growing up. There, oh, was yeah. a, there was a piano that they would gather Coretta around. Coretta Scott King uh, and, went to NEC, for and, goodness sake. Like, and, real deal, so-called classical music school. And she put together so many of these uh, concert fundraiser things to fund their marches and, their, uh, and, and all of their activities. Um, there's so much more to the man. And, you know, what's particularly pernicious is the way that the reframing of his legacy is even used as a, a way of uh, opposing other black leaders of the day. I think the most common trope is to put Martin Luther King Jr. on the other side of the ring than Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. But really, yep. but yep. really, if you study the, the history of these two men, Malcolm X had a trajectory that I think many people would uh, say got a little softer over the years. You know, he mm -hmm. went uh, on his Hajj uh, to Mecca as a Muslim and came back really understanding that we are all one, you know, all, all, all people have, have rights and liberties and, and those things, even, you know, the fair skinned, uh, blue eyed, blonde hair, you know, brothers and sisters and, and siblings. While on the other hand, you have Martin Luther King Jr. going more and more and more into his statements against things like the Vietnam War. You know, we've heard him speak against uh, capitalism. You know, he's spoken not only about anti-capitalism, but the fact that the people will never be positioned to take care of themselves. After everything that he dealt with, you know, in uh, race rights, civil rights, that sort of thing, how could he believe that, you know, the racist city, you know, and again, I'm, I'm speaking historically, you know, from his perspective, 1950s, 1960s, the racist ecosystems of Birmingham, Alabama, or Jackson, Mississippi, or or Memphis, where he was murdered, you know, my home to all of these places. If he's seeing racism really manifest in the way it is there, how could he believe that people would vote for financial systems that would take care mm. of all people, you know? So mm -hmm. he really was radical in his in his time, and I think even by today's standards, radical. People act like you are just, you know, slapping your mother or something when you say the word socialist. Mm. People are so afraid of that, but that's directly how he identified as, as a person. I think when we're talking about building unity, my view is that we have to understand the shared struggles where they exist. And if there is a struggle that we all share, I would say it's our current economic systems. Neither of us are out here, Scott, you and me, neither of us are out here working part-time jobs and, and doing all that to make it. Even so, you have 
limitations, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that you can't pay for, things that you can't fix. You know, I'm the same way. And we can't even speak to the perspective of the person who does, at least at this point, who does have to work three and four jobs, especially those who have kids, you know, and have to choose between groceries and the light bill. You know, our economic systems are our shared struggle. And I feel like if we could all look more in that direction, we could find more opportunities to 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 come together and really be on the same page. If we turn that around to the arts, I would say that our shared struggle across the ecosystem is that for the majority of us, what is typically on an orchestral concert, what's typically on classical radio, you know, over the course of a concert, over the course of 90 minutes of listening, doesn't offer anything that really actually centers our perspective. We can go to school and learn about uh, Beethoven and Haydn. We can go to school and learn about Florence Price and William Grant Still. But at the end of the day, I feel like none of us are really being served to the degree that we can be by these institutions that have all of these endowments, have all of these uh, connections uh, to resources and and access to, to different things. My view is that if we could shift our thinking in that way, maybe we can come to more compromises and maybe we can have more dialogue about how to share this thing. What do you think about the shared struggle within the arts being that none of us are really being served? None of <laughs> none of us can really pull out $500, some of us, but most of us can't pull out $500 to go see an opera that at the end of the day isn't going to leave us as spellbound as our favorite movie or or our our favorite uh, song that we don't consider classical. What do you think about that as a shared struggle? First off, if I'm paying $500 to see an opera, I don't think I'm having struggles. (laughs) 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 If I have $500 for opera, things are going real well. Uh, Yes. Real well. I must be bored. You know, I just (laughs) need to spend $500. (laughs) Right. No, I I think about it a lot. uh, And, I have loads of talks with my father about it because we are opposite. We are polar opposites on this. He asked me just recently, you know, about the uh, student debt cancellation thing that was going on. He says, what do you think about that? You know, and it was pointed. I knew exactly what he was expecting. And I, and I said, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what industry it would gut. I don't know who else would lose their job. I don't know what are the impacts. It sounds great. And, and I think that there are loads of people who need that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that he's come from a generation where I've paid my way. Right. You know, and, and I've earned my retirement, you know, which he has. But um, yeah, it's the, uh, the bootstrap idea that is so common. Uh, that, that phrase is so fun to bat around. Well, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Some people need boots. Right, right. And uh, I think that the the more and, and, and the people, sorry, the people who don't have boots, so many, proverbially speaking, so many of them have been convinced that they don't have boots because they didn't do something right. or they're wrong. You know, it's just fundamentally the thinking has to has to flip. Right. The, we need to focus on the similarities in the economic situations between people across races. Right. Forget about that because we have more in common on the socioeconomic front uh, that would unite us that to, to even worry about being divided by race. Right. And, and again, you know, back, back to my arts focus point, if we really sit down and understand that none of us 
are re- or so few of us are really being served in the way that we could be served mm. by our arts organizations, if we recognize that as a shared struggle, we may be able to, again, make those compromises and have those dialogues to be able to move forward instead of, you know, battling each other mm-hmm. while the status quo maintains. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. I have a dream too, but it's not just a dream. My dream is dedic- is is connected to dedication that's connected to action that for me manifests in daily work. That's why I pull my hair out doing all this stuff that I do because I do think we can get there. You know, the daily work, the daily headaches, the daily struggles mm. and this weekly podcast mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> all in an effort to to help us, you know, get to that mountaintop that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about. Thank you so much for listening. I know we ran a little bit long this week. We'll see y'all next week.